Dotnet Rocks episode 672 with guests Gail Frateur, Donald Belcham, Philip Laureano, and Krzysztof Kosmic. Recorded live Thursday, June 9th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at Franklin's.net. And now here are Carl and Rick. How many of you, by applause, listen to the show? Applaud if you listen. That's awesome. That's why I love Norway. Yeah, we don't even get this response in New Jersey. (laughs) Well, uh, Richard and I are here uh, today with an esteemed panel to talk about aspect-oriented programming. So before we get into it, I'd just like to let the panel introduce themselves, starting with on the end, Don, please. I'm Don Belchum. I'm a consultant out of Canada. I do primarily C-sharp development, and uh, I used to run the user group there, so dropped off the map a little bit now, but still doing a lot of code. The user group in Canada? The user, yeah, the user group. Yeah, the user group. <laughs> no, no. One of them. <laughs> How many beaver pelts a month does it cost to be a part of the user group in Canada? It's beaver pelts and uh, maple syrup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm Christoph Kozmitz. I work for a company called Redify as a consultant. Uh, they are based in uh, Australia. And I also contribute to an open source project called uh, Castle Dynamic Proxy. Yes. Mm, yeah, very good. My name is Gael Freter. I'm uh, the creator of PostSharp, which I, which I started working on uh, six years ago, and progressively it became uh, much more and more time. And now I, cr- I created a company named Sharp Crafters that continues development and sale of the product. Okay. My name is Philip Loriano. I am the author of LinFu, uh, LinFu AOP, as well as the other half of the proxy library in Hibernate, which is LinFu Dynamic Proxy. Um, basically, I'm an IO geek. I'm going to be working with Christoph in the same company pretty soon. Are you out of Hong Kong? Moving to Australia. Moving to Australia. Are we, wow. We've really got around the world representation on this panel and Canada. <laughs> <laughs> There's always the and Canada block. Yeah, well. Uh, I've, I've talked about AOP on the show before, but never really experienced it until I sat down with Gail at, uh, at the New York Code Camp. We did a DNR TV where he showed uh, PostSharp. And my first reaction was, why isn't this just in the .NET framework? You know, why isn't this just an option in Visual Studio uh, for, for development? Uh, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, for those who aren't 
familiar with AOP? Why don't we just start there? Will somebody define it for me. So aspect-oriented programming is a slightly different way to look at software application development. And what the first thing is to identify that there is a category of problems that cannot be addressed correctly with OOP, and it is all the, all the stuff with tracing, exception handling, uh, transaction handling, notify <coughs> property change. This is all a class of problems that require us to make boilerplate code. And so aspect-oriented programming, look at these problems as so-called co cross-cutting concerns and let them do code that implement just that and then apply this code to all the business code that needs to be transformed. So first we describe a transformation of the code, then we apply the transformation to the business code and because there are two phases we separate well, the aspect code from the business code and we get nice separation of concern and principally nice business code. The way I saw it was uh, you're hooking at a fundamental level things in the framework and then inserting some code at a very uh, low level so it's just done in one place and then it sort of takes it off your plate for everywhere else in your project just by decorating your object with or your classes with some attributes. Some code happens at compile time that you don't have to worry about. Takes it away, takes it off your plate. Doesn't this sort of constrain what you want to do with aspect-oriented programming? If only cross-cutting concerns is, is the stuff you're going to do in it. What shouldn't you put into aspect? Probably the easiest thing not to put in is um, business logic. It's really, really hard to find business logic that's cross-cutting, in my experience. It seems to be more infrastructure-based stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so it might be logging's the, the prime example. Um, but it's anything like that where you need it in your app, um, but it's not something where the business says, oh yeah, when we sell three of these, you get a discount type of right. stuff. Multi-level undo was another one that blew yeah. me away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Repetitive code generation of things, things that you see all over the place, and you can just generate it instead of manually coding it, things like that. So is, it, is there sort of key things that uh, or behaviors that pop out that you say this probably should be an aspect and I'm thinking when I'm repeatedly cutting pasting the same chunk of code into every method well in general if you're cutting and pasting anything that's <laughs> there are bad things going on yeah. clipboard inheritance we call that <laughs> <laughs> no but in general uh, when we talk about aspect-oriented programming it's not just these pieces of code it's also a cross-cutting structure uh, one classical example is I notify property change. Um, everybody has to implement it. Everybody hates implementing it. But at some level, you have to be able to implement this. And you can't really do this with code, per se, because it has to be done with some tool or maybe something that the compiler does. Mm -hmm. The other angle to this one is that aspect-oriented programming exists because of a compiler deficiency. Uh, there's no way to clean up all these uh, concerns that are scattered all over the place. So what happens is you have to come up with third-party tools that are able to do this kind of cleanup. Yeah, um, and I notify property change obviously happens when in binding, when you're bound to uh, a class to a UI element, let's say, and the UI element needs to know when that value is changed so it can refresh it. So any anything that you're using in Silverlight or WPF that's bound, a bound object, you're going to have that issue. Folks, if you have any questions, by all means, just throw your hand up. We'd love to hear from you. And rumor has it I have 
licenses for post sharp to give away for good questions. So let's uh, we have more products here uh, than post sharp represented. Maybe we should let um, uh, other people talk about their products. Hey, Philip, what were you working on there for AOP? Um, I was working on two things. I, I worked on uh, Linfu Dynamic Proxy. Mm -hmm. I think and Hibernate liked it so much they forked it. <laughs> and uh, the other part was uh, Linfu AOP, which did some pretty crazy stuff, which was runtime interception of basically uh, method calls and uh, being able to change any assembly, even ones that you don't own. So you could intercept um, exceptions, uh, third-party method calls. You could change, swap out method bodies at runtime, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So that was the kind of thing I, I was working on a couple of years ago until I switched to back to IOC. So that, that's a little dangerous. Runtime uh, interception. So not just of your code, but any code, any .NET managed code? Pretty much, as long as I could access the assembly. Yikes. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is one of those interesting truths, right, that is generally speaking, the implementation of asset-oriented programming seems to do some cool tricks at the IL level to make it happen. You have a question? Speak loudly. How do you do the interception? This is where the attributes. So how do you do the interception? Yeah. Well, the interception itself is, I have a library, there's a library called CISOF that is basically a re-implementation of um, system reflection. And unlike system reflection, it's, it's a read-write uh, type of reflection. So you could look at the method body, you could parse um, the individual instructions, and then add your own instructions. So uh, for Linfu, what it does is it takes uh, the existing method body and wraps the method body in basically what is if statement. And with the if statement says, if you want to intercept it, call this other method outside, which is probably going to be an interface that somebody is going to implement, which is, would be like an interceptor if you're working with a dynamic proxy. So when it calls that method, it's basically up to you to provide the behavior, or you can delegate to what the old method was actually doing. Has anyone ever used that for nefarious purposes? What are you thinking of? <laughs> oh, I'm thinking that you could write a hell of a, of a virus that way, or, or a worm. Or it's just another of. tool in the toolbox. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad inherently. I'm saying that, you know... Like I just find it, really cool things you could do evil things. With. Absolutely, I just find it interesting. We tend to forget after ten plus years of developing a .NET that there's compiling and then there's compiling, right? That these assemblies, generally speaking, are relatively accessible and overridable and manipulable as necessary, and generally right. do good things with them. I'm sure you could shoot yourself in the foot with it too. Gail, if you run across somebody who's done something horrible in in with, in, with your tools, it's made things worse. Um. Horrible. I don't know. Uh, Only good things come but from, original, from <laughs> original, yes. There is there is uh, a project I think on, on CodePlex or is it on on Google Code? Anyway, you can write validation of fields or properties or parameters using custom attributes and you would write a string inside uh, so a string with an expression being validated. So the aspect Generate C-sharp code based on the string, calls the compiler, gets an assembly, integrates the assembly inside 
the current project, and at runtime, the assembly is loaded dynamically, and this validation code in the string is being is being executed. This is quite original, I think. This is the almost compiler's service effect. That yes. They've got set down with an aspect. <laughs> yes. So this is one of one of the craziest things that, that you could that have a seen. lot of fun on April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that, man. Well, uh, question here. Yes, uh, I'm just curious about how do you uh, how do you uh, drive test driven uh, the absence or the missing aspects. Um, what I'm trying to say is, how do I verify that an aspect is missing from a method call? So, for example, if one of the aspects that exists are tracing or performance counting for that matter, and I need that on a specific level of, uh, of my project, how, how can I ensure that those aspects are being used? So, uh, you, have to, you have to test your aspects separately from the rest of your code. So uh, if you, so basically you would, you would need to test that the conditions that you coded in the aspect are actually applied. <coughs> and uh, so in the specific case of your question, how can I test that, that the aspect is, has been applied or not on the method? Then you would need to reproduce the same kind of conditions and then, and then test it. So, uh, so this specifically is, is quite complex, but it's not more complex than testing without an aspect if your code is hard-coded. It's very easy for me to verify. What I'm doing at the moment is that uh, I have uh, one of the, uh, the aspects that I'm using is that uh, I am, uh, for performance monitoring reasons, I am logging the call and counting mm -hmm. uh, that particular method call. And it's very easy for me to do that uh, because I'm just using some uh, event handler to, to pulse an event that is caused by someone else. But if I do that in an aspect-oriented way and attribute that method with, with something that would do the same, then it becomes very hard for me to test that with a unit test, for example. So mm -hmm. that's one of the things that is preventing me to yeah. from going to... Uh, there, there is, there is a, well, it's very post-trap, so specific, but one, what you could do is, is to look that the custom attribute is there on the method, for instance, or to look at the aspect symbol file to, to see if it has been applied, uh, but it's, it's, um, it's not standard. So, so uh, I have many questions about, well, I, I get many questions about testing of aspects, and it's, it's definitively possible, but it, it's a little different than, than normally. I find that uh, testing the aspect itself, what the aspect should do, is very easy. Testing the uh, the configuration and application of the aspect is way way trickier. Hmm. So um, what we've gone to on my current project is strictly convention based. Um, so we say this aspect gets applied to this namespace, and that's how we test that it's there. If it's in that namespace and we've got that piece of configuration, we're good to go. So we don't actually write an end unit test hmm. as an example. It's very visual testing is the only way we've been able to to do it in any consistent way. Okay. And Christoph, we haven't heard from you about uh, Castle. Yeah, so actually that's, that's quite easy to do with dynamic proxy because what you get, you get an object which is a proxy and the aspects are applied via interceptors. And the, every proxy that dynamic proxy creates implements an interface so you can cast the proxy object to the dynamic proxy proxy interface. And from on that interface, there's a method which allows you to get all the interceptors 
on that proxy, and then you can inspect that the interceptor that <coughs> implements the, the aspect that you want to apply is in the collection for this intercept for this proxy. Interesting. Question over here. Is there a, for my conceptual level, is, is there a difference in applying aspects that sort of um, alter your code compile time versus uh, runtime? Good question. So uh, I guess it all depends if you can. Well, not every behavior can be applied at compile time because you don't know, you don't have all the information at compile time. Uh, a very good example of that is mocking frameworks, which there is no way that, for example, the authors of Rhino mocks will know what interfaces you are going to mock, right? And what behavior you are going to expect from the interfaces that you mock. And likewise with an hibernate, there is no way that the authors of an hibernate will know uh, what what classes you're gonna get, and therefore they are not able to pre-create the proxies for lazy loading for your code. So only at runtime, where an hibernate inspects your model, it's able. To, it has only at this time at runtime it has the information to actually create the proxies for lazily loading your own model. And for every application, it's obviously different. So uh, I guess if this is your code that you, are, that you are writing this for, you know that the information you need is there. Whereas if you're like a third party provider and everyone else is going to use your library, you obviously cannot make assumptions about how the code that other people will write will look like. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side -side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Uh, yeah, I guess we, we covered the, the testability. There aren't any other barriers to testability that you can think of with, uh, with AOP. <clears throat> it's composition. Because even it, as one of the people here asked us, is, I mean, how do you actually know it's composed with the particular aspect? If you have component A and you want to tie it to a specific aspect, how do you actually test it's actually coupled with that particular aspect? But isn't that a matter of the implementation? Like, I know that PostSharp uses an attribute, so you can look for that attribute. But at some level, you still have to be able to test that it's actually occurring, whatever framework you decide to use. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a natural extension of that, you have to make sure that everything's tested, including the parts of the code that you add yeah. to the rest of the app. Yeah, and this is what you were saying, Don, is that doing that is extremely difficult. It can be, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it gets really tough. Um, we found on our uh, current project, when 
you're applying multiple aspects to the same thing. So your composition, you're building a lot of composition in, and we can we can just go in and flip the switch essentially and say, yeah, put logging on or put uh, unit of work management on and things like that. And uh, it's the testing of that, those multiple steps and multiple levels of composition that, that seems to drive uh, the most difficulty for us in our code base. If it's a simple thing, yeah, we know we're going to put one logging on here, that's easy to test. But mm -hmm. the fact that we compose our stuff on the fly and, you know, one day we, we might say, yeah, we want this over here and the next day we might not. Um, you know, that that composability is is where we're starting. We we personally on my project are starting to uh, starting to struggle the testing. Piece. What about test aspects? I mean, can you assume that if uh, you test with a test aspect that simply maybe it writes a certain string to a log, and then you have to go to the log and find the string? Can you then assume that the rest of the aspects are working? Well, that's actually what Design My Contract does. Um, back in, I think it was in the 80s, they came up with this idea, or Bertrand Meyer came up with this idea that you could wrap uh, methods with certain um, assertions. Uh, in fact, aspect-oriented programming does solve that kind of thing because in practice, you really wouldn't want to put all, all those assertions all over the place. Nowadays, it's just impractical when you could just have a separate project with your unit tests in it. And assuming if you wanted to do something like, uh, say, design by contract, mm then you would have to use aspect-oriented programming to say which uh, classes and which interfaces would have to be checked before and after the method call to make sure that uh, it's working the way it's supposed to be working. So Don, even though it's tricky to test, you still find that it's worth <coughs> oh, yeah. using it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't work on a project without it anymore, I don't think. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we use it very extensively. But it's interesting the way you just described it, that these are aspects you may switch in or out. Yeah, depending on what the, like the, um, because they're non-functional requirements essentially that we're implementing in our, our aspect, depends on how that part of the world moves inside of our, our requirements gathering. So, you know, the, the support team comes and says, you know what, we don't really think we're going to care about logging around the events being fired at the UI. Deeper down in the code, yeah, but not up there. So we, we can pull it off for them and then they come back a week later and say yeah we're looking at the logs we need it back mm -hmm. so we start composing that way and uh, it's really really easy for us to do that and uh, and it's also because we're using convention over configuration for um, attaching our stuff it just happens mm -hmm. um, I mean it's, some people are scared of that kind of magic but for our project right now uh, the guys that uh, I've brought onto the team they just start writing code and it's all getting logged um, there's no question asked, did you do the logging stuff? It's just assumed it's working and um, things like that. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't use it. The, the increase in um, velocity that we've seen out of it is uh, spectacular. How much do you think the cleanliness of your code helps things in that respect? None of this plumbing is visible. You mean, I know you, uh, you've told me a little bit about your project, that there's a bunch of different guys working on it and there's some turnover there yeah. too, so people are having to pick up other people's code. Yeah, the, um, the lack of visibility always seems to be the, uh, the biggest problem we have because of the turnover and training new people. Mm -hmm. um, usually what we find is that they don't need to know about these things all the time, right? You know, the developer doesn't need to know what's being logged. It shouldn't be the thing that they're they're thinking about when they're building a new um, service layer component or a new UI component. They, this they is not the logging focused. you were looking for. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, <laughs> the Jedi mind trick. Yes. <laughs> but so, but so if uh, if you are using a build time framework, 
like post sharp or like aspect J, you have this visibility inside the inside Visual Studio. You can see which aspects are being applied. Um, so we're using runtime and not uh, yeah. not build time stuff. Uh, we're, we're actually using uh, the stuff Christoph works on okay. in Castle Windsor and using interceptors mm -hmm. on it. And the, the visibility is simply where are we configuring our aspect to be attached in the Fluent interface for Castle Windsor. Whereas it, um, with, if we were using PostSharp, we could see on the class name, there'd be a little line under the name, you hover over it, it gives you a tooltip saying, these aspects are being attached. So the visibility um, question disappears very rapidly there. Um, the way we're using it with, uh, with the interceptors, you have to know to go look where the, for the configuration of the container, where it is, what it means, all that yeah. type of thing. So let's make a, some, oh, I'm sorry, we have a question right in front. Yeah, uh, I was, uh, have a question for uh, the post-chart author. Uh, if you, for example, implement inode for, uh, by property changed using an aspect, do you have a, a sort of attribute to that in post-chart? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you inject uh, IL code into the method uh, bodies, mm -hmm. uh, the property uh, setters. I yes. Guess. Yes. But uh, will it uh, still be able to debug? Can you set a breakpoint in the, in the setter? And uh, my question is, do you maintain the simple style? Yes. Exactly. Yes. So you can you can step into the aspect. Uh, so if you if you step into the setter, you will get into the aspect, then the aspect will call the property intercepted. You will step into the property, and uh, if you don't want to to step into the aspect because it's, it's becoming boring, then you use the custom attributes debugger step through, for instance, and then you, you so you, so you go directly to your code. So you can control that as usually. Uh, as it as if it were normal. Okay, but you, when you say step into the aspect, do you mean stepping into IO code? Or you step into the aspect code, not in, well, you see the, the code of the aspect, you don't see the MSIL code or the assembly okay. code. Okay. It does, it, it does, as Gail said, become boring very quickly when you have a lot of aspects and you're debugging and you're, you're stepping through and it's like, oh, I'm going into the logging aspect again. <laughs> the next class, I'm going into the logging aspect again. So that is one of the downfalls when you're debugging is that. Okay, we have a question way in the back. Could you please speak up? I'll try. Um, okay. You mentioned a couple of examples for like, cross-cutting concerns, uh, like logging, exception handling, those are the obvious ones. Do you have any... Uh, more examples of use cases for uh, aspects. Would you yeah. consider security? Would you consider validation? And one of the that's a good question. He says, you know, let's give some more examples of things that we can do with aspects. And I, I'd like to hold on that question after one more because that's exactly the question I was going to pose. So that we take some time to sort of give the pitch for AOP in terms of features. You know, the things that you all can get a glean from it. But one more question right up front. So you just asked, you mentioned build time and runtime uh, configuration. Is there some things that help us choose uh, which one? Question is, how do we choose between compile time aspects and runtime aspects? You attend my session tomorrow. Right? Hey! <laughs> no, I think it depends on the tooling you're using on the project. That, that's how I approach it. So. Um, if I'm already using something that supports aspects like an IOC container, I'll just integrate that rather than introducing a new uh, tool. But that, that's a personal choice I make with my clients because a lot of the times they, uh, 
they're getting introduced to a lot of stuff at one at one time anyways so throwing another tool on top of the uh, on top of the camel might break its back there yeah um, but yeah it's uh, it also depends on what functionality you need um, so the runtime type stuff like interceptors uh, through an IOC container can't do some of the things you can do with a compile time tool so if you have if you have that need then you're you're kind of forced on your hand okay uh, to my question yeah yeah I think that the, the the key point where you should use one with dynamic or, or, or build time is that if you can use dy well, dynamics or runtime, uh, we'll do it. It's, it's easier. Uh, well, the tools are more well known. But the limitations are quite severe. You can do, so you can add only aspects between a consumer and, and a service. Okay. So uh, if you need to add aspects, for instance, to uh, WCF, uh, no, not WPF form or control, you cannot put that behind the proxy. So then uh, you will need a big time aspect. But so for a complete discussion, please, please attend the session tomorrow. Is, there a, is there a performance implication between build time versus runtime? There's a definite performance implication. Mm -hmm. um, just to quickly answer that question. The other side of this one is you have to ask yourself how, how dynamic you need to be. Um, if you go build time, that assumes that you already know what you're going to be doing at the point where you build the application and you have the aspect in place. Uh, there are scenarios, of course, where you're not going to be able to know what you're going to be doing until the program's running. So uh, there are different approaches to doing that and there are different libraries that actually allow you to uh, put hooks in instead of actually putting the, the behavior itself in. So uh, that's something to consider because if you go build time, it's okay if you already know what you're going to do. But if you want to go dynamic and if you're not afraid of a little magic, mm -hmm. then go, go dynamic and just go with the runtime. Uh, a reflection, is this a, an issue with dynamic stuff? Do, do, does AOP usually rely on reflection? I mean, not always, but it can, can it? Uh, well, it relies on reflection the first time you request a proxy for a given type, because the way dynamic proxy works is you request a proxy for something, and dynamic proxy holds a cache of proxy classes that it generates, so it looks into the cache and it looks and sees, okay, I don't have a proxy for that, then I know what type I want to proxy, then it goes and using reflection and using reflection emit, it goes and it, it generates the proxy class. So there is a small performance hit at the first time you request the proxy for a given type. Okay. The second time, there, there's no reflection happening because all it does is it, it looks into the cache, okay, I have the type. Yeah. Now I can create an instance, apply the interceptors, and give you the object back. Okay. But it still might be worth it. I've, I've always found the performance hit is the idiot programmer writing the aspect. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah, it's, it's always the guy writing the aspect, like me, who thought, thinks that they've got it right and not realizing the implications of applying that aspect to a certain part of the code. Okay. So we did logging where we walked the entire um, parameter uh, list and all the sub-objects and everything and print out all the values coming in for the collections and things like that. What could go wrong? Yeah, what's yeah. wrong? <laughs> we, we applied it to our repository layer for and hibernate and had, <laughs> had it set to lazy load. And we couldn't figure out why we were getting these huge hits all of a sudden, uh, uh, performance hits against the database. 
And it was because as soon as it loads it up, lazy loaded, we walk through it and it says, oh yeah, I need this object, go to the database and get it. Oh yeah, I need this object. So we just negated lazy loading completely. Yeah. Not understanding what, what the ramifications of putting the, uh, the aspect onto that part of the application. That it, yeah, it's simply influencing the way that code's gonna behave. Yep. And as a guy that has lots of performance tuning, I would be concerned about how I'm collecting that instrumentation impacting my measurements, right? Having the observer effect. Yep. I've changed my out results because I'm measuring it. Yep. <coughs> okay, so logging is probably the, the first feature that we think of when we think of aspect-oriented programming because it's, so, uh, it's such a no-brainer uh, in tracing. But uh, some of the things that, uh, Gail, we'll start with you because I know a little bit about PostSharp. Um, one of the features that really blew me away was this multiple levels of undo, which uh, tell us just a little bit about how that works and the kind of things that you can do with it. So, so one of the ways you can, you can implement undo redo is to record the, the, a change to every field. So when you, make a, uh, when you change the field of a, of a business object to record the value before and after, you put it in a double link. Uh, list and well undo you call uh, so you you set the field to the old value and redo you set the field to the to the new value and that's super easy it's uh, just a couple hundreds of lines of code to do this double link list and so on so but the problem is that you have to record all the changes to fields and with aspect oriented programming you can make an aspect that has 100 lines of code or less and it will instrument every field and create a node in, the, in this list for every change of a field. And uh, it can save, well, thousands of lines of code if you are developing uh, a graphical user interface based on an in-memory model, it, it can save lives or... <laughs> yeah. I, I could see the undo code overwhelming the business code. It's just so much of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're writing yourself. If you're writing yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's just something that w I wouldn't even think of writing because it's ridiculous amount of code. And then you have what under redo, and then you have notify property change. Mm -hmm. But what, what when you have both objects? You, you make an undo, so, but then you have to notify that the object has been, has been modified. Mm. So uh, it becomes uh, quite tricky to make it manually, especially if you figure out in the middle of development that your past 1,000 implementations <laughs> have, right. have an issue because you didn't think about notify property change. Yeah. So th this is one, one of the killer applications. What are some of the other features that we might not think of when we think of aspect-oriented programming, Christoph? Well, so I guess it would be when you see the same code or a very similar code over and over again that you put in front of your methods or at the end of every method or things that you want to apply around those methods. Like, for example, you need a work management uh, or uh, uh, exception handling, for example. Do you want to... Uh, a good example of that would be, for example, WCF proxies. Um, so if you have a WCF proxy, and if you call a method on the proxy, uh, the, for example, the communication object may, may have been closed and you may want to recycle the object and uh, if, if you know that the call didn't get through and you may want to try the call, try the call again, right? So you can do it very transparently with, uh, with a dynamic proxy because you can try to issue the call 
and you know that, for example, the object, the communication object is closed, so we cannot make the call. You can transparently, in a way that the code that is using the proxy doesn't know, uh, you can recycle the proxy, create a new communication object, open a channel, and you can issue the call without the code that makes the call originally uh, knowing it. This, you know, I'm, I'm getting memories of COM plus enterprise <coughs> services. Is there any sort of aspect-oriented programming going on in, in enterprise services in COM plus? Am I just old? You said COM. I said yeah. COM. Don't say the C word. Com, com, I think it's, it's, it's very close to, to the concept of, uh, of AOP through interception. Because what COM does is that it, it added the aspects at the interface of the of the object. So when you required a com object, you required the implementation of an interface, but you did not get the object. You you got a proxy of the object that was running in the complex server. Mm -hmm. So uh, complex implemented implemented aspect oriented programming in some way. And we got we got the same thing in. in this is how we did distributed transactions with it. Essentially, is that it was ejecting ahead yeah. of right. uh, the the expected communications, mm -hmm. the transactional information as well. So this 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 was very close to AOP through proxies because we got well the client code talked to a proxy and uh, so the, and then there was serialization and uh, well the object worked in a different process. Mm -hmm. uh, I know Don and Krista both mentioned unit of work management. Maybe we need to run down what is that? What does it mean to have unit of work management? So unit of work is a pattern that uh, allows you to manage database uh, actions, really. So you collect them into a many different actions into a list, and then you perform them all at once. It gives transaction, tight transactioning around the execution of all those steps. Okay. Um, so we're uh, we use and hibernate on my current project and. Uh, that's all in and hibernate all handled through the session object. And uh, any, uh, any framework has one. Most uh, good ORMs will have some implementation of UR, uh, unit of work. Um, so you need to manage it though. You need to say start the unit of work and start accepting in stuff to it and then execute the unit of work. And then whatever happens at that point, whether it fails or succeeds, you do your, uh, your final step in your, uh, your transactioning. Uh, that code is tends to uh, infiltrate all over your application if you don't centralize it somewhere. Mm -hmm. I, I remember working way back when I was uh, straight out of school on code where we passed transaction objects around as parameters to try and solve this problem. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing then. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you want to centralize it into some, some other place. So having that ability to use an aspect to say this, everything that's going to be executed after this point in time has a unit of work available to it, and I'll start it up for you, and now I'll execute the code. And then the code executes, and then you say at the end, okay, I'm, I'm now finished, so let me actually uh, run through and flush the unit of work out and do whatever work out. It also strikes me that doing that as an aspect means that the guy who knows <coughs> the most about and hibernates behavior and the kind of transactions you're going to end up doing and the rules and or SLAs around transactional behavior can take responsibility for it in one shot, and everybody who does code from now on that affects and hibernate 
does the transaction right. Yeah, yeah, that someone else can impose the ruling mm -hmm. and it's uh, everybody else just does their work and the ruling is wrapped around it for them. Okay. So in other words, the concern is, is split so that it's no longer about 10 people, it's just that one guy. There's one guy who's responsible for the guy that transactions suck. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So mean, the other, now one guy can mess them all up too. I, yeah. I, I mean, the other angle to this is not just um, uh, cross-cutting concerns in the code itself. It's mm -hmm. also cross-cutting concerns within the people that are working with it with the code mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And this this turns out to be the most important benefit of AOP. When when I talk with long-time customers, like two or three years of use, they don't cite we have less lines of code. They cite the benefit that a junior developer has come to the project with, and he just sees the code that matters for the change <coughs> he has to do. He doesn't need to yeah. have a deep understanding in caching and in Hibernate and all. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. I have a guy on my project who's been there six months, seven months on the project, and just a couple weeks ago, finally stumbled across our unit of work implementation. He had no idea what we were doing with it at all. And it was fine, everything he wrote code-wise worked great, mm -hmm. but he never had to know about it. It was a piece of his mind that was just off over there that I, I don't need to use. Caching aspect? Caching aspects are nice. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, thread synchronization. Yep. Thread synchronization. Uh, all right, Phil, you're on. <laughs> Tell me all about frighten me. <laughs> well, it's if you were to do it in C sharp, it's just a lock statement around a, a method call. Right. Yeah. So instead of having to explicitly lock it, you would say, uh, "I want this aspect that before and after the method call, it locks and unlocks it." Mm-hmm. Oh. Depending on how you synchronize. <laughs> yeah, but where where it becomes hard is when when you want reader writer locks. Yeah. How many people here use reader writer locks? How many people here use locks? <laughs> uh, Lots of hands with locks, but I only saw one for reader writer locks. That's so. Why? Because because it's so hard to use. Yeah. But, but so is an aspect. You, so you can say. Well, this first is of all, first of all, a reader writer lock <laughs> is a, is something that is locked for writing, but not for reading. So you say this data structure or whatever is locked. Nobody can write to it, but but anybody can read it. So. But so when when you can do aspects, you you make say a custom attribute. This needs a, a reader log because it just reads data and it needs a consistent image of the object. Mm -hmm. And this is a writer log. And you don't have to play with the reader writer log and then the next version reader writer log slim and you have to change everything in your code. Mm -hmm. So you just have your, uh, your developers use this when it reads and when it needs to write, use this. And when it is an uh, on property, something use another log type. But we really want people to use the new uh, async features of C sharp. Yes, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't address the problem of locking. So so we will have more problem with lockings thanks to 
the async keyboard. <laughs> because now it's so hard to do different threads, then people don't do it. Yeah. But so uh, with async, there will be more threads, more problems with lockings. Mm. More like features we've got to clean up. Yeah, mm. but you know, interesting point, like the unit of work, that the one guy who really understands <coughs> thread locking can write the aspect, and, every, and it's just implemented as an attribute after that. Threading is just one of those things that has to be so finely tuned for every, every method, every little piece of code. Um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't like, don't think you can I don't generalize like generalizing threading. And another one that we used to do was the uh, context-bound object, Yeah, which was essentially anytime this object <coughs> is accessed, lock it. So it's essentially only accessible by one thread period at a time, any time you touch it. So, and that's, that's safe, but pretty damn slow. Mine is not safe, because if you use it in, in the user interface, and uh, so one thread, one thread, the worker thread changes the object, it has a lock, it calls notify property change, yeah. WPF will read the object, it has a lock, and you have a deadlock. So yeah. you need to right. read the writer locks. <laughs> For the record, uh, context-bound object is the Buick of AOP. Yes. <laughs> Nobody uses it nowadays. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's just, threading is just a horrible problem. I think it, one of the, you raised one of the big concerns that people have whenever I go into a client and bring up AOP is that um, it, so much can go wrong if we use this type of thing, right? Um, and people, it seems to me, people think of AOP at a very high level mm -hmm. for attaching it to things, but you can attach it very granularly if you use the right tools in the right way as well. So you don't have to attach it to a class. You could just attach an aspect to a, a property or a method or mm. something like that. So, so looking at it at a high level freaks people out a lot of the time. But when you get down and you say, you know what, only this one little bit I need to do this on, and you work at that level if necessary, um, it, it's it just tends a, to calm It's it. like a library call, essentially. I'm, I'm going to need this bit of plumbing inserted here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And actually, AOP is not something that you necessarily may need a specific library for. I guess there are people in this room that are using IOP, but they don't realize it. Because if you are using ASP.NET MVC and you are using action filters, mm -hmm. hey, guess what? It's an aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the same with custom behaviors in WCF. Right. Um, Sir. I take it that you have worked in projects with AOP <laughs> once uh, in a while. How common is it to, uh, to decouple aspects? Well, is that common practice, or do you lock yourself down to one specific library? Uh, Did you understand the...? Uh, so, uh, let me rephrase that. So, the question is, would you ever use, like, for example, PostSharp and Dynamic Proxy in a single project? No, for example, if you want to switch out PostSharp, how common is it to, uh, to not use PostSharp directly, but you, you decouple it? through an interface of some sort and then use that instead so that you're no longer dependent on a specific aspect. Uh, Is that wise? Because aspects may behave know. differently. Yeah. I've never done it. Okay. So to me it's always been um, you make the decision on what tool you're using and it's going to be pretty rare for that, that decision to get overturned. So I just let her rip. Yeah, but, but I believe you have aspects on like conceptual level now. Yeah, so you yeah. need these That's type of, of concepts, sure. so to say. Then you can have multiple implementations on them. That's what you're saying. Yes, yeah. yeah. 
I'm just asking if it's common uh, practice to, to do it or not. It doesn't it sound would like be, it. It'd be fairly easy to do with interceptor-based aspects because they essentially follow the same pattern. Um, the IL stuff is a lot more structured. Um, you're not as responsible for creating structure, the, uh, the decorator pattern structure, essentially. Um, so it'd be a little bit harder, but there's no reason you couldn't. Well, unless you have the interfaces or the implementation of those aspects from one library to another are different, which yeah. they probably are. In, uh, in, in PostSharp and in similar frameworks, um, the default way to, to say that an aspect must be applied is to use a custom attribute, and the default is that the custom attribute is the aspect. So if you have this and you want to switch to, uh, to another aspect framework, you need, to, you need to write a new class that inherits from a different class. Uh, you can decouple more and say, this custom attribute is derived from system.attribute. It's absolutely decoupled from the aspect framework. And then you have an assembly-wide aspect that would, that would enumerate all the methods that are decorated with this custom <coughs> attribute and add the aspect. And in this case, your code is fully decoupled from the aspect framework. There is only one, one uh, <coughs> point of coupling. It is that the aspect framework looks at all, all the attributes. The problem is the, the, the feature to feature uh, matching of PostSharp with the other built-in frameworks. But if you have equivalent features, which is a big if, uh, <laughs> you can do it this way. The other angle to this one is that some frameworks are specifically designed to leave no trace at all. It's, it's, it's this new thing with a couple of my friends on Twitter. Uh, what they're doing is, instead of doing this monolithic framework that we're used to seeing, they would actually implement iNotify property changed but you would have no reference to the framework at all. If you actually looked at it, it looks like you, would, you wrote it yourself. Hmm. Um, other things that they do is like, for example, uh, if you're using in Hibernate and you need to have everything virtual and you don't want to sit through your hundreds of domain classes and make it all virtual, then what they do is they just go through the assembly and make it virtual. And they don't leave a trace. So that's the other angle to this one. It's, it's better off not to leave a trace at all. Um, and that's more useful than relying on any given framework. Question at the back. Well, it seems to me that, uh, I'm curious because I haven't used any three months, it's about sequencing of intercepts because all of the, all of the use cases you can see can end up tripping over each other unless you can explicitly say, I want the undoing thing to happen. <coughs> uh, the, very last thing that, the very last aspect will be to record what's about to change. It's not the problem because about to change. Actually, another aspect came along, changed the arguments, and it wasn't that big change. Something else changed. The question is, uh, is there a, an issue with the sequencing of aspects and how they're applied that can have differences in behavior? Is that a challenge, or is that easy to deal with? It's definitely a challenge because um, you have to make sure that each aspect is isolated from the other. Um, one of the one of the big things is uh, side effects, because if you introduce an aspect and it does something to your state, then obviously you're going to have some problems if another aspect comes along and changes in the same state. Mm. But can, uh, Gail, can PostSharp, can you specify the order of execution for aspects? You must. In PostSharp, in PostSharp, if you don't do that, PostSharp will see that there is an ambiguity in the order of 
of application and uh, you will get a warning if you, so the warning is, I don't know in which order this aspect will be, will be executed, so I choose one order and the next time you will build the application, you will get another. And so to get rid of the warning, you have to specify the order or you have to say the aspects are commutable. It means the order doesn't matter. Okay. So it's declarative. You have to choose. It's declarative and it's, it's based uh, uh, on uh, well, so implicit ordering. You don't have necessarily to know the other aspects. So you can have different so aspect libraries that don't know about each other. And you can still express dependencies. Sure. So this, is, this was one of the most difficult points to get right is composition of aspects and still do, still do code that, that works if you, if you add a method intersection aspect and then a property intersection aspect and then a, an unexception an, an, an aspect. This composition still works. That, that's a major challenge and that's uh, uh, what, was, what I did in Postrap 2 actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, do you have any data on the uh, compile time overhead of using Postshark in the large enterprise projects? The compile time what? Overhead. Overhead. Any data on the compile time overhead of using Postshark in large projects? So it seems that the minimal cost you have to pay is uh, a little second per project. Maybe 800 milliseconds or 700, but take one second to be sure. Uh, and uh, so with version two, but it's, it's getting better. Now with version two, it, it doubled the build time, and now uh, it's getting better. It depends on the size of the project. So um, if you have a huge number of, of small projects, it's going to, to, to cost you a lot. Some, some teams say that uh, build time is very important because of, te of test-driven Development. Some teams say that the benefit is so high that if you sit one minute or two minutes, it's it's not a difference. Right. Now I'll be thinking hours. I would care about minutes, not so much. <laughs> but okay, not that much impact. Question here. How do you handle it if you need to communicate anything from the aspect to the business code, like use the work imagine a session management? You need to actually use the session object in your business code that you created in uh, in the aspect. Question is, how do you handle communication between the aspect and the business logic with uh, accessing objects in the business tier? We, we do some pretty funky stuff around uh, starting the unit work in an instance of an object that our container contains uh, or has knowledge about, and then it gets fed out as a dependency into our um, uh, objects that need it. So that object is already initialized when it's passed in as a dependency to, uh, to the next, um, uh, next class that needs it. And then once that, uh, that execution path is rolled back up, then we have that object available out of the unit of work for the aspect to be able to say roll back or, uh, or whatever is necessary at that point in time. Um, it, uh, the indirection can be very confusing at that level though, because you're, you're talking about this amorphous object that floats around out there that gets pulled into different things at different times. And uh, uh, it's not really, really clear. Um, and then if you throw, so we're doing WinForms app, and if you throw, um, you throw multi-threading in there, um, it starts to get, and making things thread safe, it starts to become even um, more difficult to, to visualize what's happening. But we, we do manage it, not through a static or a singleton or anything. We, 
We manage it through a regular class, which I guess is being served up as a singleton out of, out of Windsor in our case. But um, that's that's how we're doing it. This yes. is the same with uh, error handling, or you know, do everything. Is it the same with error handling? Yeah. If uh, an aspect throws an exception. Oh, if an, oh yeah. but if an aspect throws an exception. Yeah. Those are fun to debug. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to bubble up, or is it just? Uh, it, in my experience, it depends. <laughs> depends on what thread it happened in, things like that. Um, usually, uh, usually I try and be safe in my aspects and have try catches all over the place, and then and explicitly handle them the way I want to handle um, aspect errors and handle that differently than I want my regular code to be handled um, in error cases. Um, but yeah, if you don't do that, it can be a nightmare. It can really be a nightmare. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that's all the time we have right now. Uh, uh, but uh, one more hand for our panel. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a